0: We got his tiny little dog. She barks at everything. <laughs> I, she'll smell. She's out of the garage
1: and she'll smell you and go crazy. Well, that's so why I said I close the door. I've I've got my six year old lab in the car with me. I, oh, really? I bring him everywhere. Yeah, he um, he would do the same thing. He'll he'll go bizarre corner, go out there. If yeah, he smells her. But he's a he's not a barker. I had him for four months. No, no, no. This one,
0: this one's a, this is a little York Yorkie poo. Big dogs are good like that. Big dogs are, are much better. And this one, this one, when it sees a dog will bark because she wants the dog to come over and play with it, but it sounds like she's yeah, Anyway. They, well, they all think they're way
1: more ferocious. Well, the little are, dogs are the ones that the feisty little devils. And they're the ones that, that do the most biting from-
0: Oh, well, I think that's probably true. Big dogs, well, it's, it's also true with people. <laughs> <laughs> it's often the big guys who are, you know, Sort of gentle and, and uh, don't have to show off. It's uh, feisty little buggers who are yip, yip, and getting fights. And Anyway, I'm generalizing.
1: <laughs> Tell me about your uh, early years. You
0: grew up in Baltimore. I grew up in Baltimore. I'll be 74 years old next week on the 16th. God. As I said in the memoir, I had a tremendously happy growing up, which is a terrible thing for a writer. The uh, oldest of three boys. We were comfortable but not wealthy would be the best way to describe it. went to good schools, three boys, and I subsequently went to uh, to Princeton, which uh, like so many of my classmates, the first thing we always say is we never could get in here if we were applying today. I would not even have been allowed to apply to Princeton. I mean, because I always had good grades in the things I liked, like history and English. And then I remember I couldn't even pass science, they just got me through. I was a class president. They couldn't have a class president flunk out. But I always was a writer, uh, loved to write then. And insofar uh, as sports is concerned, was a basketball player, as you might imagine, I'm six foot four, had a real good senior year. But I realized, you know, I, went, <laughs> I had no designs on uh, being any kind of star and subsequently played for a year on the squad at Princeton, but that was, you could, you know, you could walk on. So that, you know, I never suited up or anything like that. Coach said, DeFord, you write basketball better than you play it. It's a direct quote, which <laughs> I loved. As I say, from the earliest times, Joel, I was writing stuff, I was head of the newspaper in school, head of the newspaper at college, but also wrote short stories and plays and things like that on the side. I was a writer. I realized very early on I could write. Went to New York. I left college, got in, because you get drafted in those days. Gone in, did my six months, came back out, so I had that out of the way. Came to Sports Illustrated as uh, people always say, oh my God, you went right to Sports Illustrated. Yeah, but I went to Sports Illustrated as a, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it was no big deal. Uh, but it was great because I wanted to go to New York. And uh, it was also a small enough magazine then that um, you, know, you had a chance to show your stuff. Never intended to be a sports writer. That always sort of confounds people because most people who are sports writers want to be sports writers from the time that they can't make the Little League team. Sports Illustrated suited me, and the magazine grew and I grew and sports grew, and and it all worked out, and then I started writing uh, books as well. Got married in 1965. How did you meet? We met, of all things. uh, She was a model in New York, but we met at the Delaware Shore, I still had connections to Baltimore and a bunch of guys were renting a house and they asked me if I wanted to come in on it. And a friend of hers from Baltimore said, you ought to go down there because there's this guy I think you'd like. And it was a setup. I didn't know it, but it certainly worked well. And then started dating when we went back to New York and we're married within a year. And I had three children. Well, you can't see her now behind the Christmas tree, but Alex died. She was the second one. She died of cystic fibrosis. Christian. And, well, he's over there. You can see him in that one. And then when Alex died, we um, adopted a little girl. Well, not a little girl, an infant from the Philippines, Scarlet. That, by the way, is me. I had blonde hair.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Is that, it's about age six, maybe? Oh, God, I
0: think I'm three. I think I'm really young. I don't think I would have had the little Lord Fauntleroy. But I don't you know, <laughs> it's an interesting question. That's my mother. I look exactly like my mother. What did your parents think? My mother was strictly a housewife, which was not unusual in those days, until she was in her 50s when she became a school secretary, after the kids were all sort of grown. She became. Yeah. My father was a businessman. He worked for a small company, and he was the number five or six guy, he was the secretary of the company, but they made porcelain and enamel. I mean, it couldn't have been less romantic. And he would go to work every day and, you know, just was an executive, but really just officer of a small company. did handle labor negotiations. That was one of the things that he did. He was the guy who would speak for the company uh, with the unions. Lived a very, very wonderful childhood, you you know, like Ozzy and Harriet kind of thing. Parents didn't get divorced. I never got sick. I never had anything happen to be real bad until Alex died.
1: Brothers, you're close with your brothers. Two
0: brothers. The second brother, Mac, was in the State Department, switched over and went to work for Merrill Lynch. Subsequently, was in charge. He's retired now. He was in charge of their whole um, Eastern Empire. He was in Manila. That's how we got Scarlet at the time. He was in charge of, the, of the, that office, and then subsequently ended up in charge of all of Asia. And my third brother, well, my second brother, the third child, Gil, lives in Cambridge. He's a lawyer. He's a good lawyer. He represents senior citizens, and he just, as a matter of fact, had a huge victory for uh, Medicare. I, I saw him before the Supreme Court once. we've All, all three brothers have, have lived very happy, full lives. And you've all stayed on the East Coast, more or less. Yeah, we have, even though all of us have moved north. As I write in a book, believe it or not, my great-grandfather, not my great-great, but my great-grandfather fought as head of a a regiment in South Carolina during the Civil War. He was an Antietam. Came from South Carolina, and my mother came from Richmond. So we've all migrated north. I've lived in the New York area ever since college. Never Moved back. We actually, lived in this house since since the day President Nixon left office, wow, August tenth, nineteen seventy four. It's for sale now.
1: I noticed that. What's the? Uh, well, we it's just, it? just
0: too big. Yeah. It's the two of us. The kids have grown, and uh, we we're just going to move in if we can sell it. We've got a bid now, but you know, you know, they bid, and we come back with a counter offer, and we're waiting to hear from them. And maybe they're going to say I'm <laughs> yours. I don't know. <laughs> Well, we just want to move into new york uh, we have been the last three or four years spending a couple of months uh, in key west so i don't treat the uh the cold as well as 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 i used to in my uh, stronger days but i i am you know in professionally i stayed at sports illustrated from 1962 to 1989 when I left to take over the National. You know about the National? I remember okay. that very I was
1: one of your most loyal print customers. Everybody bought, loved I, it. We bought that thing every day for a year well, and a half.
0: Everybody loved it, but we couldn't, make, couldn't yeah. make it go. I lost $150 million. It was a critical success, economic failure. I worked for Newsweek for a while on contract. Worked for Vanity Fair. Went back to Sports Illustrated. I've been with NPR since 1980, except for the two years I was at a national, when I couldn't do it. I've done television since the 1980s, but always as a sideline, and I've written is it eight, 18 books now.
1: You've written books about some of the most popular sports in the world that are followed by millions and millions of people. The one book you wrote that probably reached the most people was yeah, Alex. Do you Alex. mind talking a little bit about that and your work with uh, Sister Piper?
0: Yeah, um, when, Alex, when Alex was born, she almost died. Uh, finally, the C.F. was diagnosed, and in those days, uh, that was pretty much a death sentence. As a matter of fact, she lived just about—she lived at the age of eight, and that's just about what the lifespan was for a C.F. person. I, I, uh, I knew that uh, she was going to be probably the, the most searing, affecting uh, part of my life. and It was probably going to be tragic ending. I was you know I wasn't under any illusions unless a miracle cure was found <laughs> and, and, and of course it wasn't so I started taking notes about her I sort of deluded myself or I kidding myself I took notes about my son too my healthy son so that I didn't feel it didn't feel you know quite so morbid but I I knew that if she died I would write a eulogy for her if she lived it would be you know magnificent wonderful so She didn't live, she died, and then I, I uh, I guess it was about a year later, a little more than a year later, that I started writing the book, subsequently turned into a movie, ABC movie, It's that's hard to figure, but remember, but in those days, there were no cable channels to speak of, and an ABC movie was was huge. It was probably seen, you know, by a a third of the people watching television. Alex became... uh, a symbol for the whole disease. She really did. Uh, I became subsequently the chairman. I was on the board then and, and subsequently became chairman of the foundation, which I think probably more so than anything I've written is my finest accomplishment. I was chairman, I think, for 16 or 17 years, long time. I'm not anymore. I'm chairman emeritus now, which means I don't have to go to a meeting. No, that, that book, I still, people come up to me, tell me now how much it meant to them, People come up and tell me that it literally changed their life in that they became, they read it when they were a child and that made them decide to become a physical therapist or a pediatrician or whatever. People come up to me now and introduce themselves as Alex because they were named after her. These are grown women now, you understand. I mean, and I still get mail about it. Um, Two weeks ago, I got 25 letters from a class in somewhere in West Virginia. You're absolutely right in saying there's no question that it has had so much more effect than than anything else that I wrote. Uh, And I'm very, you know, proud that I could have given Alex's life, you know, meaning besides just being a a little eight-year-old girl who died tragically. She really was amazing, but I'm sure that everybody thinks their child who shows courage in the face of that kind of thing. So, yeah, that, that really has been the only huge setback in my life, obviously. You know, I've like had ups and downs, but but nothing else approaches that. I look upon myself as very blessed.
1: And, you know, the chance to take that and turn it into what you did and, and help all these other people, is that something, you know, when you were young and thought about writing, did you ever think that you could have that sort of impact through I'm, that? Certainly no, in sports. I don't
0: think so. No, I don't think it's a different, you know, you would like to think that you can write something That that will have an impact, but you don't think it's going to be something that's happened to you that you're going to write about that has an impact. So, yes, I'm very flattered when somebody comes up and says, I've been reading your stuff forever and it has meant so much to me and I I love this story and that story. Yeah, as a writer, that's what you hope to hear. But to to think that a tragedy of mine would have the most impact. No, you don't. You don't imagine that. And and I must say that when I wrote the book, I had no idea that it would have the effect that it would. Did you write it more as a cathartic thing for yourself? Yeah, it, it, it probably was cathartic. But certainly, I didn't do it for that reason. I did it for two reasons. Number one, to celebrate her. And number two with a very, very pragmatic intention of bringing attention to cystic fibrosis, which is what it did. It gave cystic fibrosis a face. It had no image whatsoever of cystic fibrosis. And so that was very cold, that part of it. I can do this. Some people can go out and raise money. I can't do that. Some people can put together a great event and all this. I can't do that, but I can write this book about my daughter. So there was, it was absolutely twofold, celebrate her and let the world know about her and to help cystic fibrosis and achieve both.
1: And you, Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely made a concrete difference in it the has. disease. That did it the, the has. I have,
0: it is no question okay. that now, I mean, we've gone beyond that, and, and I think they're really very close to, to uh, cure, not a cure, control, like diabetes is controlled by insulin, same thing. And, and they're very close to that. The irony of my life is, I said, I've said, i had no other tragedy ever, is that I was diagnosed with a genetic lung disease, not cystic fibrosis. But in my 40s, I started to have um, breathing problems. I had smoked. I was never a heavy smoker, but, you know, and I was diagnosed with something called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is a very, very, well, it's a terminal lung disease, which really sort of mimics emphysema. Huh. It's sort of genetic emphysema, but it has other elements, which luckily I don't have. It has a liver component, which oh. also and and uh but it's just like emphysema. But here I am still alive, uh at the age of almost seventy four. So I really can't bitch about that. I've been getting infusions for twenty years. Every month I get an infusion wow. which tries to put what's missing back inside and I me mean, doesn't do a very good job, but it does enough to keep me alive. Wow. So I have, uh, I, I, it's sort of funny that, that I was a carrier of one <laughs> fatal lung disease and, and got another one. Nobody in either the cystic fibrosis or the alpha-1 <laughs> community has ever met anybody. Like, hey, I'm lucky.
1: What a guy. Now, it, has the treatment changed at all in the 20 years since no. you've been doing it? Exactly well,
0: the-, <laughs> the, 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 the puffers and things like that are somewhat better. Uh, the medication is somewhat better. It's one of these things that sometimes the treatments work better for some people than for others. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm unlucky that I got the thing, but I also read somewhere in the literature that men get it worse than women. So that's been my cross to bear, but I'm still active and I only have to use oxygen when I do exercises, you know, like on a treadmill, you know, it's very hard for me to go upstairs. Very, you know, walk long distances. to cold weather. But um, basically, I am very lucky. I live a pretty good life, and uh, I'm still doing what I love. Currently, you're still doing the yeah. uh, the morning edition. I do the morning edition. I'm going to do one more year of uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumble. I was going to quit this year, and everybody said, "Well, stay one more till good year 75 that's a good. My wife <laughs> said that. Brian Goebbels said that. Like, All right, now, what the hell?
1: You got to listen to your wife and Brian Gubel. And
0: so the two of them, you know, squeeze me. That's fine. I mean, I'm. Except it, it's the travel that's the bitch. Not on airplanes. If you stay put on an airplane, I've learned this. They always say uh, the people at the Alpha One say, "Hey, you take oxygen." I said, "No, no, no. If you stay still, it's just like reading at ten thousand feet. You can do it." <laughs> <laughs> but then you got to get off the airplane. Yeah. And walk! Yeah. No, so I'm gonna do that one more year. And then outside of that, I'm working on another novel, whether it'll, you know, novels are dicey things. I mean, I can remember one time I gave up three or four years and never could make it work. What's, uh, what's this one about? If you may it's know. about a family, probably inspired by watching Downton Abbey and, <laughs> and the Forsyth drama and all the other family kind of things. But it's really embryonic at this point. It's fun. I, I never played golf. I couldn't play golf now anyway it, 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 I did play tennis. I had to give that up a long time ago. But the point is I don't really have any great hobbies. So writing is, is not just uh, what I do for a living it's also you know sort of a hobby and, and, and so that's what this is in my dotage.
1: It's your outlet for everything for stress for, yeah. for worry for everything.
0: No I just that's all I've been able to do. I can't do anything else. I was an actor as a kid. I think if I hadn't been a writer, I might have tried acting. But there's nothing... I don't know what the hell else I would have done. I have no abilities whatsoever. I can't <laughs> fix anything. I, 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 I don't know. I don't I have any idea. As I say, I, I was stupid in a lot of things,
1: science and math. I, you know. That's why Bob, Bob Ryan said the exact same thing. That Anything that had to do with counting or oh, I science, he couldn't... I mean, I'm the same way. I think that's why we're, we're in what we're in. Right? Yeah.
0: So... Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know if I could have been a teacher. I don't know what the hell I would have done. The point was, from the time I was nine years old, I knew what I wanted to be, so that made it pretty
1: good. Who did you read when you were a kid? You
0: it's funny. That's a often asked me. And I was never influenced by anybody. You know, fell in love with some writer and wanted to be like Hemingway or whatever. I was obviously influenced by Catcher in the Rye, just... But I've never read anything else of Salinger's it's that's particularly yeah. Zooey and all that stuff. Never, yeah. I never bought into that. I dedicated my memoir to two old teachers, both of whom are alive. One was my English teacher, and one was my basketball coach. Both of them alive. One of them is in his late eighties, and the other one is ninety-two or so. The English teacher gave me a great respect for the classics, for Shakespeare, and
1: never inspired by any. Never inspired by any.
0: it with certain books that would come along, like Catcher in the Rye, and so forth, never had the the the. the affection or devotion devotion i suppose is the word
1: and it, it seems reflective in your own work because you didn't yeah when you got that job at sports illustrated you could have become a sports writer right. instead you've written novels yeah. you've written nonfiction.
0: yeah most most of my novels have nothing to do with sport and, and and that part of that is is to get away from sport i mean that's intentional but part of it is too you know i'm not as good a sports fan as you know i like sports but uh I don't really like football that much. That really sets me apart. And uh, particularly since, as we found out, you know, how awful dangerous the game can be, which we should have known all along. But I'm not the dyed-in-the-wool sports fan that most of the people who read me probably are. I appreciate the fact that people listening to me are not necessarily sports fans. Yet you go the whole gamut. I mean, some people listening to NPR are just as crazy as you know, is ESPN. This is what they listen to in the morning. And then you're going to go all the way and get some people who are tiny sports fans and some people who are baseball fans, but they're not hockey fans. And you get all the way over to um, people who don't, who really dislike sports and who sometimes write in to, to NPR and say it's a total waste of time.
1: You're three minutes of three, three three, minutes
0: Totally. I don't understand why this is on. This is, this is, that friend of mine got Michael Mearshaugh is a really good novelist. I spent much of my life writing about people who don't read. And the last 25 or 30 years, I've been best known for talking about sports to people who don't like sports. And that pretty much sums it up. I get an awful lot of of letters or meet people who say that they don't like sports or don't care that much about sports, but they enjoy me very much.
1: Part of it is because you're not... Because 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 I know that I have to be.
0: And I'm very privileged in that, because when you really think about it, most sports writers are confined, you know, to the sports pages. But, you know, you're you're not in, in the broad mainstream. Even in a newspaper or even when newspapers were in their prime, if you wanted to read the sports writer, you had to at least go to the sports section. Now, maybe he would be right there on page one of the sports section, but you had to go there. And, like, my wife never reads the sports section, so she, you know, would never would have encountered someone like me. Whereas, on NPR, you'd have to change the dial to get away from me. I'm a default position. So, uh, so anyway, it's, it's yeah, it's been a very unusual sports life that I've had as a journalist.
1: And as far as, you know, conscious decisions you made along the way to, to make sure you weren't stuck down that path, was it just well, about... First of all,
0: the very nature of Sports Illustrated, particularly in the early days, was to my benefit because it was a much broader magazine. They used yeah. to do a lot of—I didn't do—but they used to do a lot of, say, environmental stories. They used to do travel stories, so they allowed much more range than had I gone to a newspaper, which really would have been the only other choice. But I don't think—I I think if I hadn't gone to Sports Illustrated, I really don't know. It's very unlikely I would have gone to a sports section. I probably would have gone into some, or I might have gone and you know, written, say, for television. That, that's always been sort of my uh, regret that I never was able to write drama successfully, anyway. But so the Sports Illustrated allowed me to sort of stake out a position of not being a mainstream sports writer. The funny thing is that in the early years, most of what I did was, when I first got to the magazine, I. I I was then the the basketball writer for several years. And so, for much of the year, I was a beat writer. But even then, it was different. Now, if you're a beat writer, you have to know all the statistics. And in those days, at Sports Illustrated, what they wanted was somebody who could write good stories. I didn't have to be an expert. When I was about 32, 33, I went to the editor and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, I just, I just can't do it anymore. I don't want to be Mr. Basketball. There's no other sport I want to cover. First, I was covering both college and pro, which says a lot right there. That shows you how little interest there was in basketball at that time. The one guy was covering both college and pro. You know, another, other writers would drop in and do a story occasionally. But basically, I was the basketball guy. It was one basketball editor, one basketball writer. And about seven or eight years in, they came to me and said, Well, we got to split. And this relates to what you're talking about. I remember very distinctly, they said, You want to do the pros or the colleges? You get the choice. I said, Oh, God, I want to do the pros. Colleges, I said, are, You know, they're, they're such a fraud. I mean, it was even then. I said, At least the pros. I liked the pros better because it was grown ups. That was part of the reason that I chose the pros then, because colleges I knew were, you know, it was all a joke. But then the last year I covered. Was the year that the Knicks won? Was that 71? seventy-one?
1: Seventy-one.
0: Yeah. So it was thirty-two, and then then thereafter I covered some tennis, but that was a secondary sport. So you didn't have to, you know, I'd go to Wimbledon, and then maybe I'd write two other pieces in the part of the year. So essentially, I was through covering sports when I was thirty-two years old, and I'm seventy-four, and that's so a forty. I've been covering, <laughs> I've been writing about sports for the last forty-two years without covering them. People are astonished. They still don't get it. I'll see somebody at the post office, and it'll be the first week in May, and they'll say, well, why aren't you at the Masters? Isn't that, no, the first week in April. Why aren't you at the Masters? Oh, I guess you'll be going down to spring training. You know, they think that's what a sports writer does, which I understand. It's very, very subtle when I go to a game. That's just, and now I'm too old to go to games and fight the traffic and walk up the steps. I can't, no, but I mean, essentially, I haven't gone to games in 42 years. Do you remember the last pro event you went to? My daughter-in-law is a producer for SNY, the Mets Network. So got good seats to a Mets game this year. The only other reason I would go to a game would be I would be doing a story for real sports. So in the last few years, I went, I mean, as a fan, I went to the Kentucky Derby one year. I went to the this one year. I always go out and see the tennis. But the last football game I saw, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, couldn't tell you. And no interest in going out, which, by the way, is happening to a lot of other people as well. Cold weather, get in the car, drive, get caught in parking, freeze your ass off, sit there, watch the game, pay a huge amount of money. You can sit in your own house and on these magnificent television sets that are larger than this room. That's what's happening. I'm ahead of the curve.
1: When we were kids rooting for for a basketball team, we didn't care what the guy's contract status no. was. I think you had that's... no idea.
0: He couldn't do anything about it. He was stuck with the team. So it wasn't like I wonder whether Joe Smith is going to leave the team this year. When his, well, of course he's not going to leave the team. He's owned by the team. The guy couldn't go anywhere. So now you didn't talk about him. Maybe they're going to trade him. But if they did, then you're going to get something in value. So,
1: and you know the guy, the guy that's responsible for. A lot of that Marvin Miller uh, just yes. away.
0: Yes, Marvin Miller was a very, very important person in, in the whole history of, of American sports.
1: The concern for money, do you think that's actually washing away legitimate fan interest No, in I sports? don't think so.
0: I, I mean, people have said that for years, but I haven't noticed it. I mean, yes, I, I mean, I read the paper and I see there offering Kevin Euclidus $12 million. I mean, Kevin Euclidus, $12 million? He's just a journeyman now. He's just, why, would, but that's what the market will bear. And they would not be offering him $12 million unless they thought they were gonna make more than $12 million off of Kevin Euclidus. In an odd way, the figures are so outlandish that the average person can't relate to them. It means much more that you're gonna buy a beer and it's $6 or $4. That's something you can connect with, or that the seat you're sitting at is so forth. But when you talk, this guy's getting 7.5 million, this guy's get, it, it's it doesn't, I can't equate it to anything. In the old days, when, when the top player would get, say, $100,000, you could sort of equate that to what rich people were getting in this. But now it's just, just, so I don't think it turns people off. No, I do not think it turns people off at all. The only thing that turns people off, oddly enough, is... The idea that college athletes would get paid. That's just confounding to me but that's another issue. But that really is, uh, upsets a lot of people.
1: It doesn't upset people that, that the NCAA signed a $10 billion or $12 no. billion dollar contract no, that and they can't share anything with the, with the
0: no. kids. And it, it doesn't seem to bother them that a run-of-the-mill professional is going to get $8 million or $12 million or whatever. But a college athlete gets nothing. That, that, it, it just That's changing, by the way. It's changed huge. It's a little bit like uh, same-sex marriage. Fifteen years ago, you couldn't hardly find anybody who would think a gay should be allowed to marry. Very few. And the same thing with with college athletes. Fifteen, twenty years ago, no one thought college athletes should get paid or no one. There are very few people. And now that has shifted markedly. No. particularly in this section of the country. I'm sure that in the Southeastern Conference, it's still
1: looked upon as heresy. How long do you think maybe until that actually some form of that? Becomes
0: I I, um, I have a feeling that the lawsuit that's coming, the Obanian lawsuit, which is coming down the pipeline, which does not relate directly to athletes getting, mm. college athletes getting, but that that is really going to, start to unravel the NCAA. I I'm sort of af- afraid myself that like Steve Spurrier came out not long ago and said, "Yes, I think they should be paid." And he made suggestions that were minuscule. In other words, you know, $300 a game or some I forget what it was. Whereas I think, you know, if they should be paid, you know, hundreds of the, the Alabama quarterback should be making a million dollars a year. Not as much as Peyton Manning, no, because he's only 21 or twenty years. But I think that's the territory that they should be paid in. But it's amazing to me that these guys have not seen the way the train is headed and that they don't want to put it off on the sidetrack and give them a little money. It's amazing to me because I think that whenever it does occur, then they're going to make a lot of money. But when that happens, I, I just... There's a, such tremendous resistance. I still get people who say things like, well, I don't care that much about the Olympics now that they get paid. And I think they're full of it. You know, the whole idea that some guy running the 100-yard dash doesn't care as much now because he gets paid. I mean, it just it makes no sense. It makes no sense that Michael Phelps is a different creature than Mark Spitz. Michael Phelps doesn't, isn't just as competitive as Mark Spitz is. That's crazy. It's just the, the only difference is Mark Spitz didn't get paid and Michael Phelps did. I think people it's just sort of in here, most of them think that amateurism has been around,
1: going back to the Greeks, people have been brainwashed. Well, we see that too now. People don't want the NBA stars in the Olympics anymore. They want to roll yeah. back to, to the other 23 team.
0: I can understand that from the, from the NBA point of view. And I can also understand the argument, which I think is a good, like, like golf is going in and people say. Wait a minute. Golf has got the Masters. Golf has yeah, got the U.S. Open. The Ryder Cup. It's the same with tennis. Tennis has got its tournaments, doesn't need it. So I can understand that. I can understand David Stern, not wanting. In effect,
1: he's given away his product. That's a different argument. The NBA does not own these players. No, they don't. If Kobe Bryant wants to go play in the Olympics, should he not you be You can't stop to... it.
0: But soccer does do that. So They've let a loophole in, and I think they let two players or something like that. Essentially, soccer, which is terribly corrupt as we all know all of these things these international organizations are corrupt you just start with that premise (laughs) (laughs) they don't want the olympics to compete with the world cup and i don't blame them if i were them i would be trying to stop it too and that's what stern's trying to do but no he does not own kobe Bryant. if kobe Bryant wants to play for the united states of america david stern can't stop him unless he
1: writes it into his contract which they can certainly do so go go back down a level, and essentially, these college players are owned. You sign that scholarship; you're owned by that school. You, you can't about. It. You can't go out to dinner with a with a oh. fan. You can't get a, a part time job at Radio Shack. Yet they're expected to earn all these billions of dollars. For uh, well,
0: even before you sign the contract, you you're, you're not allowed to get an agent. Which is where else in American society could I then get a lawyer to help me make a decision? It would be like you coming in telling me, well, you, you can't get a real estate to sell your house, right? In other words, what I'm saying is even before you agree, you have to live by the rules of the NCA, which is you can't pay a lawyer to help
1: make your decision. And it, you, know, you can't even interact with the, the staff enough to yeah. inform yourself.
0: A lot of the rules in the NCAA are there to stop cheaters. But then, once those rules are made, to, to stop the really bad guys, they really end up hurting the kids. I mean, I understand the genesis of the rules in most cases. Your parents can't travel, all that, you know. Then it ends up that you can't go to a funeral because okay. that would be allowed, that would be giving-
1: Improper benefit. Yes, right. yes.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and we've all tolerated it. And, and the people who are most to blame are the people in my profession. We don't, it never occurred to me when I was covering, now, I was very young, and it was a different era. As you can see, I let myself off the hook. But it never occurred to me, when I was covering college basketball, that I should also be responsible for covering the NCAA. Nor did any editor say that. Oh, so, so maybe I would occasionally drop in a line about how ridiculous it was. But nobody who covers college sports covers the NCAA the answer would be, well, nobody wants to read about it. And that's true. But journalists have been really remiss. We've covered professional sports. We were late in coming to the party, but we covered the strikes and the lockouts and and the things like that. We wrote about free agency. As I say, we were late in coming to it. And once again, it was you sort of had to be led to water to do it. But the NCAA, Largely because nobody disputes it. In other words, the reason we covered a strike is because the two sides were having a... a, Nobody ever disputes the NCAA. But nobody in our profession ever, until very recently, I'm talking about until very recently, stood up and pointed this out. We would in passing. It was almost sort of a joke, you know. And if you accept the premise of amateurism, then you excuse the NCAA. That's basically it. The NCAA is based on amateur. I mean, everything flows from that. We're going to control players by forcing them to be amateurs, and everything flows from that. And Everybody yeah. accepts the idea that this is the way, you rah, rah, rah. Even though amateurism doesn't work, never has worked, even though college sports have never worked, going back into the 1870s, ringers,
1: yeah. money under the table. There have been, I think, eight Final Four appearances vacated in the last 22 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's always been forgotten about very quickly. Well, first of all, when was it vacated? Not in 1992, years later. It made a blip, I suppose, in um, Massachusetts or in circles, but nobody really knew. The University of Connecticut just got turned down for the ACC. Now, whether or not <laughs> that's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> I'm not getting into that, but they desperately wanted it. The UConn basketball team, everybody has known has been cheating for years and years and years. Now they can't even play in the Big East tournament. Nobody graduated since 1924, <laughs> but that doesn't come up because Jim Calhoun is a god. But obviously that's the reason the ACC said, we don't want you, God. my god, nobody graduates. And then they'll say, well, look at the rate of graduation, which of course includes mostly the cross players and swimmers, and softball players, softball players. I mean, it's all such garbage. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I get started, and it just, it just blows my mind.
1: Now, I, I, I love that you mentioned that number because UMass likes to tout their graduation rates being for student athletes being at or slightly above the national yeah. average. They're about 74 percent. The uh, women's numbers are 94 to yeah. 96 the non-revenue men's sports are all yeah. in the mid 80s yeah. and the football and basketball teams are in the 40s yeah at the same time that
0: Calhoun couldn't graduate anybody i don't think a single player has yeah. not graduated from Geneva RM as women's team it's just completely different and, and the
1: polar opposite is what's happening with what is doing at kentucky now taking all these players oh, yeah, for, well, you know, for a year and then sending them off to the pro i don't
0: even think they count. i don't think that counts against you if a guy goes pro it shouldn't i'm all for what calipari is doing I mean, I think it makes a sham of things. But
1: they're already a sham.
0: It's already a sham. And, and, and the NCAA didn't make the rule. The NBA made the rule, which is forcing this. And why should the kids be forced to stay around? It's not a hell of a lot different from football, where I think you have to spend two years. Mm-hmm. Tennis players can go. and Pete Sampras, I think, was going around the world when he was 15. So I don't <laughs> I, I don't know John Calipari. He's certainly not a role model of mine or a hero, but he's doing it better than anybody else. I think it's almost sort of a joke. It's ridiculous when you think about it. There's just five guys come in and play, win the national
1: championship and move on. But I, I don't have any problem with it. I guess you could send this back 50 years, the the divergence between university interests and college athletic interests. Yes. And so it's what led to, to Sandusky thing, it's what led to all, all this conference hopping now, that sort of complete divergence between economic interests and academic yeah. interests, is that something that, that can continue to be tolerated? Are we moving towards- Well,
0: first of all, I'm not so sure that it just goes back 50 years. You know, Robert Hutchins, Chicago, when they gave up football in the 1930s, there's a Marx Brothers movie from the early 1930s, which I can't, is it Duck Soup? Which jokes about this even then, you know, I think Groucho plays the dean or the president or something. Well, you have to give up the college or the team. Well, we'll give up the college, you know, that kind of thing. So, so the diversions came a lot longer. It's just that now there's just so much more money and college football in particular. I mean, it used to be we'd sort of refer to college football and basketball at almost the same breath. And now it's, it's Football is, is exponentially larger than basketball. It's just a tin can tied to the tail of, of football. We can witness what's happened to the Big East. Big East yeah. was created as a basketball conference. Nobody even yeah. wants basketball anymore. It's just a sort of a... But I'm sorry, your question was, is it going to continue to diverge or what's going to stop it? it? It seems to me that it's gaining more speed whatsoever. There just seems to be so much money out there. So many people love it. I see different figures at different times about alumni giving. I've seen it all over the map. In other words, the fluidity factor. When you have success, does it lead to more giving? And I've seen it both ways. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I remember at the University of Seattle years ago when they gave up basketball and the president told me it helped our giving. I mean, this is like 30 years ago. So I don't know. I mean, that's always the argument, though. The argument is that it makes us more famous. I've also read, again, this is the Flutie factor. Yes, all all sorts of more kids applied to Boston College after Flutie, but they weren't better students. They were just more guys. I've never seen the correct figures as to, does football really have an impact, and basketball, does it really have an impact beyond the simple fame that it brings to the school, which is, in effect, immeasurable? And the money that it brings to a few places,
1: and so much now is about building a brand. That's yes, what a lot of these schools but, are trying but, to do.
0: But if you're not making actual money, like Ohio State and Alabama, what is having a brand? What does that do for Tulane? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't understand. Suppose Tulane gave up football and basketball tomorrow. Suppose Vanderbilt did. Suppose Western Kentucky did. How would that affect those schools?
1: Would it have an effect? Academically, not at all. For I don't. Vanderbilt would be better off That's, for that's it. I mean. yeah. So it's that's what I don't understand. The
0: whole thing seems to me to on the premise that it's necessary to have these teams. I'm not so sure that it is. You know, there is a lacrosse conference, lacrosse that extends from Connecticut to Colorado, and I'm thinking, what? What is? Why can't they just play people play each other ten times? Pack and Fairfield? <laughs> why do they have to? fly to to Denison, Ohio. None of it makes any sense to me, and nobody has ever been able to... I know I'm just talking in circles, and I apologize, but I don't understand it.
1: The Big East in 2014 will have uh, Boise State, Central Florida, Houston, Memphis, San Diego State, SMU, South Florida, Temple, Tulane, East Carolina, and Navy.
0: we, We always get back to the thing, how many of them are actually making money? And then, why is it that... Football has to pay for the athletic program. The history department doesn't have to pay for the sociology department. The people who run these universities are supposed to be making decisions. And their decision is, we can't afford a sociology department. It's not, we have to build up the history department so that it pays for the associate. You see what I'm saying? If you want to have athletics, fine. But maybe they should just be intramural. But the idea that football, and this is what's usually applied as a justification for football, pays for lacrosse, pays for swimming, pays for tennis, is, is, I think, another very, very specious argument. Once again, it's unfair to the kids who play football, because essentially the guy who plays linebacker is paying, instead of he getting paid, the assistant swimming coach is getting the money that should go to the linebacker. And, and so, I mean, so the whole thing is so, if you'll excuse me, un <laughs> Uncapitalistic, undemocratic. I'm
1: sorry. No, no. It's funny. You're the first person to suggest a sort of merit-based, you know, professional model for paying college athletes. But but you're right. It, that is by far the more American of the two. Yes. To give every kid 500 bucks a week is is pure socialism. Yes. But not that you know that may not oh, be the best. the quarterback, season.
0: the yeah. kid at Texas A and M next year. No, Johnny <laughs> Should football. Johnny yeah, Johnny football should get a $2 million contract. But that doesn't mean that the left tackle should. But you see, that's, that's what they Of course, they're too stupid to figure it out. That's what they should do. They should say, guess what? We're going to give all you boys $200 a week. And everybody said, wow. Spurrier was smart enough to say that. And then a the couple of presidents came in, and they were smart enough. They said, yeah, that's a great idea. And then the assholes started that amateurism stuff. And they said, we can't afford it. If you can't afford it, then you shouldn't have football. I always say this, I suppose you had a restaurant, you have a restaurant and you're doing great. I come to your restaurant and I said, this is fabulous. And, and you say, yeah, it's, it's great because uh, I'm making a lot of money as the owner. Major D, he's doing great. The top chef makes a fortune. We don't pay any of the cooks or the waiters. It's a terrific restaurant. It's a great business model, yeah. It's a great exactly, it's a business model. And I say, well, you know, you have you have to pay the cooks and the waiters. And you say, but if I do that, I can't make any money. And I say, well, then you can't have a restaurant. I just okay, then, then maybe Tulane shouldn't have a football team. And then we should decide, well, now, We've got a budget of $180 million a year, whatever it is. Now, how much of that do we want to put into athletic? Do we want to have a tennis team? Or would we rather have a small uh, Italian department? Which is more important? Do we want to put it all into intramural sports? I mean, the University of Chicago is doing, so far as I know, pretty damn well. And I don't know what kind. Maybe they're in Division Three or something like that. But they gave up football n- almost 100 years ago. Those, it seems to me, are the choices Now, you get into one more thing, which is the whole business of of, of football concussions. Why does my alma mater, Princeton, field a football team? 3,000 people come out to the games, and most of them are older than I am. Students don't go. Young alumni don't go. Maybe they go to the Yale game every other year. You're putting all this money into this program where guys are, are risking their brains, and to my mind, it's not worth it is is that does it really bring anybody to princeton to have a football team besides football players does it really bring a single person there would it be missed yes the alumni some of the alumni would have a fit but after five years and i think that would be true at an awful lot of schools and maybe it's going to be forced in a while part of it is a fear of being left out of step with someone. But I believe, and again, this is getting off the track from the NCAA because football is just, this has all come up. But I think so far, the suits have been pretty much confined, the lawsuits to to the NFL. Mm -hmm. It's got to change.
1: Yeah, yeah. down to high school.
0: It's going to start in high schools. And and somebody's going to sue the team doctor. And all of a sudden, doctor's going to say,
1: whoa. "Ah."
0: And then you're going to have a football team without a doctor?
1: Or with a terrible doctor. Oh yes, yeah. yeah.
0: Or or some high school suburban like the one here in Westport, whatever conference they're in, they're going to say, yeah. "This this just isn't worth it. That we're liable to this kind of." I just I think this is all coming down the road, but I don't know. There seems to be such a measured affection for football that.
1: Yeah, I mean, like anything else in this country, we, we, we like our traditions and we hold on to them. I know. I mean, long past
0: their yes, use to us. And, yeah. and I'm sure if, you know, they tried to take soccer out of Italy, they would have just as much of a problem. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but the health issue really does piled on top of the expense issue. I, I can't, I just can't visualize it 20 years from now. I won't be around 20 years from now, but I just can't see it's going to be the same.
1: You've managed to be lucky enough to cover... Athletes like Pele, Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe. Yeah, uh, yeah. J- uh, John Carlos. Uh, do you think we'll ever see another athlete like that? Or are the economic interests too great?
0: I think that if you look back, the people that you're talking about came in an era when young people, whether they were athletes or not, were stirred up and active. I think it's more a function of the times than it is of the athletes. I think if there was a... Draft today, you would have just as many athletes popping up and being as outspoken as Ash and Jim Brown and, and all those sort of sort of people. It's always we say, "What's the matter with athletes today?" Yeah. But I don't think athletes in the nineteen thirties and forties were particularly outspoken. I don't. I think mean, it was just that.
1: Yeah, that, we had Jesse that Owens, cohort. Yeah, yeah. Right.
0: Jesse Owens, the poor son of a bitch. He wins, but again, this is the press. People don't know this. Jesse Owens wins all those gold medals. It's been a little hyped up, you know. You think that Hitler came and slapped him in the face (laughs) and everything. You know, it wasn't as dramatic as that, but nonetheless, it was dramatic. Do you know that then he was not allowed to stay in Europe and run? No, no. Avery Brundage would not allow him to stay in Europe and run and make money under the table. But you see, you don't know that. Very few people do, and nobody wrote about it. It was like, fuck it. And so he comes back, he can't get a job, and then he's running in state fairs against yeah. ponies. We have at least come a long way, and the fact remains, though, that everywhere in the world, everywhere, and if somebody can contradict me on this, I'm waiting to hear it. Nobody ever has. Everywhere in the world where amateurism used to be connected to big-money sports... It isn't any longer except in college football and basketball in the United States of America. Tennis, big money, rugby, swimming, track and field, field, skiing, all of those sports were big money and amateurism. And one by one, Juan Antonio Samurano, who ran the Olympics, was the biggest douchebag that ever lived. He was corrupt, he was a pain in the ass, he was arrogant. But the one thing he did was, he was smart enough to see that amateurism didn't work and he said, okay, Mr. Basketball, okay, Mr. Skiing Federation, you guys wanna run it any way you can, that's fine. Fencing pentathlon wants to stay amateur, That's, that's their business. That's it. With college, football, and basketball, the only places in the world where big money is involved and amateurism is forced. The United States of America, land of the free. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. to appalling. Money is in sports everywhere in the world. Everywhere else where money is involved, athletes are allowed to make their money. Except the kids who play for John Calipari. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Or Johnny Football. or And there's 100,000 people in the stadium. And the coach is making, what, $5 million? And the defensive coordinator is making in a million and a half. And journalists are sitting in the press box that we're making a nice salary. And the TV guys are making $2 million apiece. And we think that's fine because it's the love of the game. When I give speeches and, and I bring this up and invariably somebody raises their hand and says, and I understand it that they're spending 40000 or $45,000 to send their child to school. He's getting a free education. What, what do you mean he's not getting paid? My answer is always, where else in America is the barter system still in effect? Where, where else? Would you take kind to whatever you do, sir? In your, I don't think so. And then you could get into the business. Well, first of all, they don't go to... Classes in there, and, and that's all a fraud. Dak, if that makes a fraud, you know that's an argument, and I understand it. It's a very visceral argument, particularly if you're paying forty thousand dollars to send your kid to a, to, which is a whole other thing.
1: Yeah. And these kids are in you know, class fifteen hours a week, and and study hall for twelve, and practice for twenty. So they're they're certainly yeah. putting in their time.
0: But I was stunned. Well, I shouldn't say I was stunned. Surprised. When all this business about the University of North Carolina popped up Mm -hmm. because I don't know the rankings of state universities, but I know in any ranking, North Carolina is in the top half dozen or so. And yet it was clear that it was completely fraudulent. And the chancellor threw himself on the sword and resigned. And yet the NCAA said, we can't do anything about this. Well, of course you can't do anything. I mean, that's where the NCAA's hands are tied. Mm -hmm. They don't know who's going to class. They, don't, they really don't. Right. Or is somebody writing term papers for them? They don't know that. All they can do is little chicken shit details where he texts him 14 times, where he's only supposed to text him 12 times or yeah. whatever, the, you know, I mean, they can get him on that. They would never get North Carolina. They would go after Eastern Carolina.
1: <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that was a, that was a surprise.
0: It, it just told me everybody doing it. Yeah.
1: Anything else you'd like to... No, I've uh, ranted. You know, I've
0: ranted. This, is, this is a subject where I just rant on and, uh, in frustration, and, and ultimately it is, it is a shame. It is a shame of, of academia in America. I'll, I'll say one other thing, which I always say in my speeches, that I think there is a connection when you see, I don't know what the ratio is at UMass, but it's probably approaching 60% female. So
1: I think it's about 54 at this point. Okay. Yeah.
0: In some places... Uh, you go further down the ladder, it's approaching two-thirds. I got to believe, and there are a lot of reasons, including <laughs> the very real one, that they're smarter than we are, which <laughs> is probably true, but <laughs> I still think that the emphasis on, on, on athletics for boys from an early age and the lure of the, of the uh, athletic scholarship You can say girls get athletic scholarships now, too. I know know that, but boys get the glamour one. But that's gotta have had some effect on the failure of boys in America to do as well in the classroom. And we all know that's declining. I really believe that. And, And can I prove it? No, but I just think it's common sense that if you glamorize sports to such an extent, and and hold that college scholarship up, athletic scholarship to such an extent. It, it's over time has has had an effect now. Maybe it's gonna screw things up for girls now too, so they'll end up as dumb as we are. But
1: <laughs> it'll take years.
0: It'll it'll take a long yeah, yeah. it'll take a long time and, and only basketball players right now. Yeah, right. But I I really I mean you hear you hear about fathers who tell kids at the age of seven, Well don't don't play don't play football because you you, you got a better chance to get a uh, lacrosse scholarship. I don't think that's the right idea.
1: The idea about kids in sports should be run around outside and stay healthy yeah. and then learn how to cooperate with others and, and we respond the to authority own. and react to adversity and these things. It's not, yeah, yeah, the lessons are lost.
0: We are the only country. you know. They don't have it in France or China or Australia, anywhere else. Yeah, anywhere.
1: No collegiate
0: no, athletics anywhere. Yeah. I don't even think that high I mean, it's not collegiate. It's also high school. I don't, I don't think they have... Yeah, it's all, it's all club clubs. Clubs and yeah. things like that. Anyway, when I would write for Sports Illustrated, when I would cover Wimbledon or the U.S. Open, and those are two-week tournaments, often I would not even be expected to do a story in, at the end of the first week, depending, particularly in the U.S. Open, because it was football season, but okay. But the most I would have to do would be to do a story at the end of the first week, which would be very featureless and so forth, and then do a wrap up story after the end of the second week. That was it. The kid today who's doing it, he's filing for si.com. He probably, does he get to see any matches? I could sort of say, well, I think I'll go over here and see, you know, so and so, and maybe you know, right from the top it's changed. He's
1: he's live blogging. He's shooting that's right, blogging. Oh yeah.
0: They probably say, "Look, would you do uh, radio for? this? probably a SI radio or some connection, uh, it's important to us." And, uh, and
1: part of that's economics too. The newspapers don't have the money. The broadcast outlets don't have the money. That's right. Yeah, you know, so they.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I've always often said I came at the right time. I, I mean, I don't, I don't I don't like being seventy four years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, but. 200 years from now when we're all dead and gone and we're all up in heaven, I can say to the guys, hey, I came at the right time, I'm sorry. (laughs) Take me a while to get the last word in.